If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we are going to be finishing up something that we kind of just left untouched last week. And as you're finding that passage, I want to ask you some questions. First, do you ever think about the second coming of Christ? You ever think about um, what it would be like to be raptured and transformed in the moment and in the twinkling of an eye? Yes. yes, to be standing there before the Lord of glory, face to face, blameless with great joy. Some of you who are older, I am sure, think of heaven more often than you used to. When your earthly tent starts to break down and you can't do the things you used to do and the person you talk to the most is your doctor (laughs) and your hearing is fading, your eyesight is growing dim, your joints ache, you have trouble trying to keep all your pills organized (laughs) and you're a prime candidate for some sort of ectomy. You think of heaven more, don't you? And what is interesting about that is God has a way of allowing our outer man to decay. We, we start off feeble and we become more self-sufficient. And then as we get older, he strips that away from us. Finger by finger, joint by joint, ache by ache. He pries the things of this world away from us. So that the only thing we have left is Him. And so the only thing we have to look forward to is Him. And we can learn some incredible things about heaven from studying God's Word. There are statements such as First. Uh, Corinthians 2 9 where where Paul says heaven is like things that eye has not seen or ear has not heard or entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him that is a great statement or when Paul says I uh, I am sure that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in the saints You can't even compare. I don't care how much you're suffering here. It's not even comparable. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things and the earth. Hebrews 12.12 says we should run the race fixing our eyes on Jesus. 1 Peter 1.13 says we are to fix our hope completely, completely on the grace to be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies themselves. Verses like this tell us to be looking up, thinking about heaven, fixing our eyes on the things to come, on the things above, on the appearing of Christ, on the nature of God. And we have read about streets of gold in the scripture. We have sang about them this morning. The new Jerusalem and angels and living creatures and seraphim and cherubim. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Many great and wonderful things. But the greatest thing about heaven 
is Jesus. God incarnate. A lot of people don't realize this, but when Jesus became a man, it was for good. Jesus didn't become a man, live life as a man, and then die to go back to what he was before. He will always be the incarnate God, glorified but the God-man. And do you know why? So you can get a glimpse of God. The one who died for you on the cross became a man for eternity thereafter, so you could see him. We learned last week that Paul is concluding this letter to Timothy, and in verse 11, he he gives him a whole string of commands, flee from these things, speaking of the envy and the the conceit and the strife and the love of money and the discontentment in the preceding context. Flee from these things, but pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. He says, fight the good fight. He says, take hold of the eternal life. He says, keep the commandment, which is everything he has said in the letter so far. Keep it, Timothy. And he says, keep it until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, that is God the Father, will bring about at the proper time. And he just is so excited, so excited about that thought until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God the Father will bring about at the proper time, that he just pins a doxology. He pins a little praise to God so that Timothy will realize this is the kind of God I'm serving. This is why I can do all these things written in this book. Because I have a great God, and I serve a great God, and He is the God of great resources, so I can do this. That's what Paul wants Timothy to realize, and that's what he wants you and I to realize. And so after he tells him to flee from these things, and to pursue other things, and to fight the good fight, and take hold, and keep the commandment until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, then... In the second half of verse 15, after he talks about God the Father bringing about the second coming at the proper time, he pens this doxology. Look there. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him... Be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The only way to honor God is to love God. And the only way to love God is to obey Him. And so this little doxology here is Paul's final motivating poke at Timothy. So that he gets into perspective that it's not him dealing with a bunch of sinners in Ephesus. This is about the great and awesome God whom he has served. The great and awesome God who became a man. The great and awesome God who laid down his life for Timothy. That Timothy is called to do these things because that great and awesome God gives him everything he needs for life and godliness. And from these, this verse and a half, we have five key attributes of God. The first is, your God is sovereign. Secondly, your God is immortal. Third, your God is holy. Fourth, your God is invisible. And five, your God is worthy of praise and worship. Now, some of you may know this already, but this winter we are going to be doing a very long series on the attributes of God from Psalm 145. And so we are not going to 
go very slow, although we could. We'll save that for later. But I just want to survey some of these great attributes and hopefully it will give you a taste for better things to come. Look at verse 15 in the middle. Your God is sovereign. The text says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Here, he tells us in all these words, basically, that God is sovereign. But he does it in four different ways. Four different ways. First, he says, God is the blessed sovereign. There's only two places in the New Testament where God is called the blessed God. That's here and in chapter 1, verse 11 of the same book, 1 Timothy. Blessedness is the quality of being happy. Now, a lot of times we think of happiness as some sort of human emotion that, that is fleeting. Well, God is happy. He is blessed. He is blessed and he is happy for two primary reasons. One, because of who he is. Because all of his attributes are perfect and infinite. And in and of himself, he is happy. He doesn't need anyone to make him happy. He is blessed because he is the God who is blessed. And secondly, God is blessed or blessed because he is able to bless his creatures and make them happy. He is the God of abundant grace, of abundant mercy and love and compassion and forgiveness. His steadfast love never ceases and His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. And God, because He is sovereign, will for all eternity... Shower upon unworthy sinners like you and me the abundance of his blessedness. Now that is something to think about. That is something to really think about. That if you are truly saved, if you have repented of your sins, if you have believed in Jesus Christ alone to save you and trusting in His death and His burial and His resurrection, if you have experienced the transformation of salvation and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, you will be blessed by God for all eternity. God will, with infinite wisdom and almighty power, Set his mind to make you perfectly happy for all eternity. And believe me, he can do it. We will not be sitting in heaven, strumming a harp on some cold, dark cloud. God will make you happy for all eternity because he is the blessed God. Secondly, the text says he is the only sovereign. Not only is he the blessed sovereign, but the only sovereign. This singles God out as the only supreme ruler, the only almighty God. There is none who compares. All other sovereigns, all other rulers and kings and authorities on earth, whether in heaven or whether on earth, all receive their sovereignty and dominion from God who is sovereign over all. We saw that when we read Daniel 4 this morning for the scripture reading. God is the one who grants sovereignty and he takes sovereignty away. Read Isaiah 40 sometime. He says, all the nations are like a speck of dust on the scale, and all of them, if they all got together, he would just blow on them like chaff, and they would be driven away. No, God is not only blessed, he is the only blessed sovereign. And God is the only sovereign by the fact that Paul says he is another thing, the king of kings. A king is a monarch, a ruler. And if you're going to be a king, you need to have several things. One, you need to have a position of authority. 
Secondly, you need to have the power to exercise your position of authority. Third, you need to have an area, a dominion, a sphere, an area by which you rule over. And third, you need to have subjects who serve you and that obey your commands. God is that in the very ultimate sense of the word. He is the blessed and only sovereign king of kings. And fourth and finally, he is the sovereign Lord of lords. The designation Lord of Lords, like the designation King of Kings, doesn't just mean He is the greatest of kings, but it really means, literally means in the Greek, He is the Lord over all those who are lords, just like He is the King over all those who are king. Lord might also be translated master, and a master is someone who is put in charge over, over servants. Everybody is a servant to God. Whether they like it or not, they either willingly or unwillingly will serve him and serve his purposes for his glory. God is our master. He is our Lord. He is our king. The greatest of all and none others compare. So he is the blessed sovereign, the only sovereign, the king of kings sovereign and the Lord of lords sovereign. And all this is to tell us that God is sovereign. And this is the God that we worship here. This is the God you can know through Jesus Christ. This is the God who rules all of your life, all the time, in every single circumstance you ever experience or anybody you know ever experiences or any experience you ever read about that ever happens. God rules over it all. This means murder and rape. It means sickness. It means relationship problems. It means planes crashing into buildings and wars. It means Hitler and Stalin. It means every ruler and every power that has ever existed, has only existed by the decree of God. Romans 13 says there is no power except that which exists by God. God is sovereign over it all. God kills who he wants. He preserves whom he wants. He has compassion on whom he wants and mercy on whom he wants. God does what he wants because he is sovereign. And for you, the sovereignty of God should be a huge parachute in your life. A parachute that you can just jump into, which will allow you to escape from being smashed by despair. God's sovereignty is so great a doctrine that it should just allow you to just rest. I mean, when you read the scriptures of godly men and women and in great and trying circumstances, they were just calm. Why is that? Because they knew God was sovereign. You know, you might hear someone say sometime, or maybe you've said this. Why did God let this happen? Why did God let that happen? Or this other thing happen? And by asking that, what we really mean is, God, this isn't fair, and you have done evil. When you question the work of God, you question His goodness. You're really saying, why are you being evil by not doing what I think you should do? When we question God's plan, we are judging his goodness and wisdom. Even though his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways and as high as the heaven is above the earth, so God's ways are above our ways, yet we still have the audacity to say, but God, how come? But what we really should be saying is this, God, why? Have you not poured out your wrath on me? Lord, I am a sinner. Why have you not judged me? Surely I am found wanting and my sin is ever before you. Why don't you destroy me? Why don't you cast me into the lake of fire? Surely I deserve it. Why, Lord, why? Why are you so patient with me? Why did you send Jesus to die for me even though I was his enemy? 
Why did you let me hear the gospel? Why did you open my heart to receive the gospel? Why did you save me and choose me before the foundation of the world? Why? Why have you promised perfect happiness for me and all those who love you when we are such sinners and so unworthy of your grace? Why? Because he is the blessed and only sovereign. That's why. God's sovereignty is true. And because it is true, you need to cease from fretting. Cease from being anxious. Relax. You are not in control. God is. But you might be thinking to yourself, but will God always be in control? Will he always be for be there for me? Our next point answers that question. Your God is immortal. Look at verse 16. It says, who alone possesses immortality. The word immortality is the Greek word athanasia. You've heard the word euthanasia. means to kill somebody because their life is hopelessly in the balance, so you kill them prematurely to keep them from suffering. It comes from the Greek word meaning death, but it has an A in front of it which negates it, so it really means deathless or unable to die. God is the unable-to-die God, the God who possesses deathlessness. He will never die. You can't kill him, which means he will always be there for you. He's not going to be laid up in the hospital because he's getting a knee replacement. He is the immortal God. It's the same word Paul used in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, and 54, where it talks about us after being raptured, being clothed with immortality. Deathlessness. When you study immortality, it is closely related to another attribute of God, his eternality. You see, if God is going to never die, never, never, never die... That means he has to live forever and ever so he can never, never die. So the two are very closely related. And we need to realize that God exists apart from time. It's it's even hard for us to speak of anything apart from time. We, we We don't even have a vocabulary to describe something that we've never experienced. But theologians talk about God existing in the eternal now. God is infinite, and in the midst of his being, he created all time. God doesn't have to wait for something to happen. He's already there. He doesn't have to look back at something. He's already there. God is at all times simultaneously. That's why he knows the end from the beginning, because time is just something he created in the midst of his being. Imagine a line going in both directions for all eternity. That is like God's immortal nature. His eternal nature just unceasing. Now God creates creatures and he makes them in the midst of time exist in a portion of time. So imagine a dot with a line going on for infinity. Now, angels were created, and they are immortal. And believers, when they place their faith in Jesus Christ, receive the gift of what? Eternal life, which we learned last week is not only a duration of life, but it is also a quality of life of knowing Jesus Christ and being in his presence forever. It's not just duration. So we, too, upon believing in Christ begin a life of immortality also. Though we all will experience the death of our bodies, we will live even though we die. If we know Jesus and we have eternal life. Now, unbelievers, because they have rejected Jesus and will not submit to God, they get to have eternal death. 
They don't get to have the quality of life of knowing Jesus Christ. They have the quality of life of knowing they'll never know him. That is the worst part of hell. Being eternally separated from God in the presence of his angels. That's why the Bible calls it the second death, the lake of fire. They will suffer torment day and night forever and ever away from God. That is a state of living death. So God is infinite in both directions. We, in the midst of his being, have a beginning and a continuance. So do the angels. But the only way we have immortality and the only way the angels have immortality is because God grants it to us. It's not part of our own essence. It is the gift of God. God has it as of essence. He has it of his own nature. And because he lives forever, he lives forever to bless those who love him and to curse those who hate him. Do you know what this means for you? It means God will always be there for you. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, God is always there for you. You can speak and he hears. You can pray and he listens. He is there all the time and always will be because he's the immortal God. He will comfort you in your trials and give you strength when you need it to do his will. Your God is the only blessed, sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, and He alone, only Him, possesses absolute immortality. Not only that, a third point. He is a holy God. Your God is holy. Look at verse 16 again. It also says that God is one who dwells in unapproachable light. That is a great thought, isn't it? Unapproachable light. Jeff talked about the thousand suns behind the curtain and just opening it up and a little light shining through. If you remove the whole curtain, you would just be consumed by the light on the other side. And here it says God dwells, which is an active participle, which means he's always and continually in a state of this radiance that is so intense, it's unapproachable. Do you remember what uh, the author of Hebrews said of Christ in Hebrews? I think it's 1 verse 3 where it says, He is the exact representation of His nature and the radiance of His glory. The radiance, the glory, the Shekinah. And that's what God is. It's a state that God always exists in and it's described here as light, unapproachable, unapproachable, meaning inaccessible, beyond reach, beyond the grasp of any. Light is the opposite of darkness. And when you study light in the scriptures, what's interesting is it's rarely used of light, like, you know, light of the lamp or light of the sun. That is the rare occurrence. The most frequent occurrence is used of, listen, truth and living the truth, which is righteousness. Righteousness and truth and the spiritual purity that comes from walking in the truth. That's what light almost always is in the scriptures. Listen to how the Apostle John uses light in 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Now, as I read, notice how he interchanges light with truth. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him... And yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sins. Here the text uses light is of God, and we are to walk in the light, and if we don't walk in the light, we don't practice the light, no, the truth. But if we do the truth, then we walk in the light. Truth being light. Synonyms. Psalm 119, 105, we know it well. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. 
John 1, 9 says, Jesus was the light which coming into the world enlightened every man. With what? Truth. Believers are called sons of light and are called to walk as children of light in the beginning of Ephesians 5. We are to be in a small degree of what God is in an infinite way. And there is a general word for this. It's holiness. It's talking about holiness. Holiness is God's truth lived out in the life of an individual. Truth put into action is holiness. To be separate from sin and to be drawn near to God. You find this all the way through the Bible. Holiness is truth, light put into action. We are familiar with the words of a classic hymn by John H. Samus who wrote in the late 1800s these words. Listen to them. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds in our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. That's what it means to walk in the light. As children of light, and what a tragedy it is to call yourself a Christian and walk in darkness. So when the text tells us that God is constantly dwelling in a light or truth which is unapproachable, it is talking about the radiance of His infinite holiness and glory, His purity and truth which emanate from Him to an infinite degree. And although we can partake of it in a small degree, we can only have a little bit of it. Turn to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. This is a great text because it shows us the intensity of the God of unapproachable light. We're just going to look at a few verses here. Look at verse 7. It tells us Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Moses made this little tent out there. You want to go talk with God? I'm going to go out there, I'm going to talk with God. And God talked with Moses in that little tent outside the camp. And what's interesting is if you go down, look at verse 12. Moses begins a conversation with the Lord in the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Did you see that? You want to know God? You know His ways. If you don't know how to obey God, you can't know God. Because knowing God is to obey God. And knowing God's ways is to know Him. Look over in verse 17 of 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. I want to see the ten thousand sons of your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And then God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to stick you into this hole, this crack in between these two boulders. You hunker down there, turn your head away, crouch down, look the other way. I'll tell you what, I'll go by, 
I'll proclaim my goodness, and I'll let you get a glimpse of the afterglow. Look at verse 5 of 34. Then the Lord descended on the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. I don't know what he said. Maybe show me your glory. Show me your glory. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. And look at verse 8. Moses made haste. That means real fast. To bow low towards the earth and worship. Now what's interesting, if you turn over and look at verse 29... It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. That's God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. He was glowing. He came down the mountain, and by getting a little glimpse of God, his face was glowing like one of those light sticks that you get it, you know, the kids run around with at Halloween. His face was radiant. And everybody thought, whoa, what's happening? He's up there to talk with God, and he's come down, he's glowing. And they, did, they were afraid to come near him. And that was just the afterglow of the afterglow of God reflecting itself on Moses' face. But it was so intense because our God dwells in unapproachable light. His holiness and righteousness and truth are infinite. And that is why believers are called into the light. That's why they are called children of light. And that's where they are called to walk in the light. Because they serve the God of unapproachable light. Have you ever wanted to see God like Moses? Well, you can't. Why? Point four, the text says of God whom no man has seen or can see. This is emphatic in the Greek. It means absolutely, positively, no man has ever seen God or will ever see God. He cannot be seen by men. But then the question comes, well, how can this be? Didn't Moses see God? Didn't Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel see God in visions? Didn't Jesus say, the pure in heart shall see God? Didn't he say to Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? How can Paul say, absolutely no one has seen him or will see him? Well, the first thing you need to understand is, what does Paul mean when he says, see Paul is not saying no man has ever had a glimpse of God. The word see is often used to mean see so as to perceive and understand. It's like when you are scolding your child and you say, do you see what I'm telling you? Well, you can't, they can't literally see what you're telling them. They're hearing what you're telling, but what you mean is, do you understand what I'm telling you? That's how it's used here. Who no man has been able to fully comprehend or understand. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel had visions of God and saw God in a limited way, a little bit of God. And it is true that the pure in heart are the only ones who can even begin to understand who God is but only in a limited way. And we can understand some things about God, but not the whole picture, because God is infinite. It would be like this. Imagine there being a picture that is infinite 
infinitely wide and infinitely tall. And there you are, under this infinite plane that is a picture. It's got something on it. It's so huge and so big that you can run around all your life looking at pieces of it. But it goes on for so much, you can only see the little bit that's there in front of you. It's infinite. And that's how God is. And so, sure, you know, we can spend our whole life and we can figure out that's the thumb of somebody. And we've ran for hundreds, a thousand miles, canvassing part of that thumbnail. And we, we finally realized, this is, this is a thumb, I think. This is a thumbnail. We get a little thumbnail sketch of God that we spend our whole life looking at the picture. God is infinite. He is so infinite. And He is so great. He is not... Flesh and blood, the scriptures say, he is spirit. But what's great is, is God wanted to reveal himself to man. And that is why he became a man. That is why Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He wasn't saying, well, if you've seen my body, you know what God's like. He was saying, if you see how I speak... If you see the things I do, the wisdom I have, the power I display, you are getting a glimpse of the Father. That's what he's saying. God is spirit and does not have flesh and blood. He is the invisible God whom no man can see or will be able to see. But Jesus will always be there in heaven so you can see God incarnate. Jesus' body was his humanity, but not his divinity. It was the character that shone through. This is why John said in 1 John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. Now, in four verses before that, he said that the word who, be, who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his light. And then he says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. John, speak to me. I'm confused. Well, you got to see him a little bit, but you're not going to get to see the whole picture. He says he is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Jesus helped explain the invisible God to us. And that's why God became a man. That's part of the reason why Jesus became a man. So he could explain the Father to us. So we could have something to see. And Jesus will forever exist in this incarnate form. In the form of a man, though God-man. So that you can relate to something. Instead of just pure unapproachable light. John says the same thing in 1 John 4.12. No one has seen God at any time. So what could be seen of the Father by looking at Jesus? His character, His wisdom, His power, His compassion, His mercy, His grace. The Father displaying Himself in everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did. Because Jesus' character is identical to the Father's. And the Father's character is identical to Jesus's. But God is so big, He's so infinite, we can never see the whole picture. Just a glimpse through the curtain, just a thumb on the picture. That is why Solomon said what he did in 1 Kings 8.27, when he's dedicating the temple. Do you remember what he said? The heavens and the highest of heavens cannot contain thee. You would have just as much luck seeing all of God as going outside at night and trying to see everything in the universe at one time. You can't do it. But what's great is, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, the pure in heart shall see God. And in Hebrews 12, 14, we are told to pursue sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And 1 John 3, 6 reminds us that those who practice evil have not seen God. Sin is like an iron curtain that keeps you from perceiving and understanding God. You live in sin, you have no way of understanding God. 
people come and they want to get married, they're sleeping together. It's like, you are not in the position to discern God's will for your life. You are living in rebellion against God. And the scriptures say that those who practice evil have not seen God. So how are you expect to understand God if you're walking in darkness instead of the light? No, if you want a glimpse of God, you must walk with pure hearts before him. You must pursue sanctification, pursue holiness. And it is by walking in God's truth that you begin to understand a little bit of God. Now, what should this do for you? Well, it should purify you. And as you walk with God and as you understand God, as you walk with him, it should make you know him better. And as you know him better, it should make you want to worship him. And that's why Paul says what he does at the very end here. Your God is to be worshipped. Look at what he says at the end of verse 16, the last line. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Two things ascribed to God. First, honor. And we've looked at this term. It means to respect, to esteem, to reverence. And how do you respect and esteem and reverence God? By loving Him. How do you love Him? By obeying Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Not only does He give you His word so you know how to keep a commandments, He gives you His spirit so you can keep His commandments. And then He calls you to keep them. He gives you everything you need for life and godliness and says, Here, do these things and you will be showing love to me and you will get to know me. Because this is me. And as you walk in these ways, you walk in my ways and you will understand me better. Second, Paul calls us to ascribe eternal dominion to God. Here's the eternality of God. Not speaking of eternal life, the quality of life, but duration. He's saying, I want God to have eternal dominion. The word dominion is really might, strength, or power. That's how it's almost always translated in the New Testament. But whenever it's in reference to Christ, especially his second coming, it's talked about his dominion. Because when God exercises strength, power, and might, he has dominion. He has dominion and might. It's not just a term that means, well, yeah, God's strong, but God is strong as he rules heaven and earth. And we know since he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, he will rule with a rod of iron forever and ever, the scriptures say. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter says of Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And guess what? Paul says the same thing here. Amen. It means let it be done or make it so. It is to give the heartiest approval to what has just been said. I want to ask you here. All of these little things about God, you're thinking, man, God's invisible. He's immortal. He's all of these things. Eh? He said, he's always existing. He's totally sovereign. What difference does that make? It makes every difference. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. God's watching over you. God's waiting for you. God's power is not just used to judge the wicked. His power is also used to bless the righteous, those whom he has called, to give you perfect happiness for eternity. And I don't care how much you have to suffer here, God is the blessed and only sovereign. And he is that way for you. Leave here today rejoicing that your king is the blessed and only sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. Leave here today knowing that your God alone possesses immortality. He'll always be there for you. He's not going to die on you. Leave here knowing that God dwells in unapproachable light and that he gives you a glimpse of that light. And the more you study God's word and draw close to God, walking in the truth the more you will see the face of God. Leave here today knowing that your God is the invisible God whom no man has seen or can see, but thank him for Jesus Christ, 
who is the exact representation of his nature. Leave here today praising and worshiping your God. We read, actually sang a song earlier, and uh, I want to just read the words to it. And as I do, I want you to see if, after going through these verses in a kind of a quick way, these words mean more than they did earlier. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Where do you think he got that from? Some verse in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above, thy clouds, which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life thou givest, to both great and small, in all life thou livest, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on a tree, and wither and perish, but not changest thee. Thou reignest in glory, thou dwellest in light. Thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All laud we would render, O help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for the great truths hidden there. Father, we confess that so often we are so caught up in our own little petty things, worldly things, perishing things, temporary things, that we forget that we serve an immortal, immortal, invisible, a God-only wise who alone is sovereign. Father, I pray for those here who may not know you, who have never given their life to Jesus Christ, those who are walking in darkness. Father, I pray that you would be pleased to reveal your Son in them, help them to see their sinfulness, help them to be overcome by the grief of their own wickedness. In desperation, may they flee to you, to your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for them on the cross. And Father, I pray that as we leave here today, this wouldn't be just an interesting bit of facts. But Father, that these truths would change our lives, that we would live in the world as children of light, because we are sons and daughters of light. And you have called us to live according to your truth, which is light, for the glory of your Son, who is the light coming into the world and enlightening every man. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.